When I first came here in 2003, December, um, I came with a hunger to share who I am in Christ, this good news of my identity in Christ. And that's good, and that's important. I will forever teach that. But what I've since come to learn, there's, there's more. There's more than just knowing who I am in Christ, which is more self-centered, but to discover who God is. Who is our Heavenly Father? And the last five years have been peeling back lies and layers of who I thought God was, and I'm being shocked into reality that, wait a minute, this God we say we believe in, he's actually good? Because I grew up in a really religious, really religious uh, kind of culture and well-churched and lots of rules and heavy-handed structure and, you know, heavy discipline and all that stuff, and you, you go to church. And all that was nice, but it made me feel like God is the guy who's saying, you have to go. It's like, wait a minute. And here at Hope Fellowship, we've been unlearning that and discovering you get to come and participate because you want to. You know, there are some Sundays you don't feel like coming. I know that. Some Sundays I don't feel like coming. But I got to (laughs) come. I'm kidding. It's true. Not not every day is wonderful, at least uh, in experience. But it is wonderful if you get your focus right. Um, I'm going to encourage you guys to take a look at a book. There's only seven copies left on the back table. It's called Safe and Sound. This is the beginning of faith. This is... Good news. In fact, a lot of what I'm going to share with you this morning comes from this, especially one chapter. Um, uh, For the record, I was going to do, and I will be doing soon, a quick understanding of the Bible. How do you read it? How do you understand it? Uh, Where do you begin? All the basics that everybody should know and most don't know. So that is coming really soon. Um, Just a heads up. So that. I promised it, and I want to do it. All my notes are ready. I'm eager, and I thought I'd be ready today, and I wasn't. Something else came up. This came up. I felt God saying, no, I want you to teach about my love. Well, that's pretty generic, you know. (laughs) It's actually not. There's more to it today, and I hope today, based on what I have learned from this book, and by the way, this book will do a much better job than my message today in explaining the depths of the verses we're going to look at today. Just a heads up. So this is from Paul Anderson Walsh. He's out of England. Great guy. You will never 
light is breaking through The dark of night will not overtake me I am pressing into you
to the orphan, healer to the broken. This is our God. He brings peace to our madness and comfort in our sadness. This is our God. Thank you, worship team. All right, kids, you are dismissed to Sunday school. Go have fun. Teachers, good luck. Um, those that want to go, the classes are out there. Junior high is on. That's grades 6, 7, and 8. So head on out, and mom and dad and whoever wants to stay gets to stay here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a great day. And thank you that you are continually teaching us about who you really are. Sometimes the journey begins with discovering who we are in you. But the goal is to discover more exciting you. Tearing down the walls of lies that we've believed about what you're really like. I pray this morning you'll open our hearts to see who you are in a profound way. And for these prayer requests we have here, um, Father, I pray for healing for those that are on the journey of healing for Diane and her cancer. Uh, work through that process and keep her encouraged. Give the doctors wisdom. 
thank you that she somehow has this incredible attitude. And I pray that you keep giving it to her. Because that's just fruit from you. That's pretty amazing. For those that are looking for work, Father, provide the jobs. You are the great provider and can do it. So Lord, may we keep our eyes open, seeing how we can love each other as a church family. That means actually getting to know each other first and whatever that takes. This morning, open our minds, our eyes, our ears to hear what it is you want to teach us today. And uh, open me up to be teachable and to teach. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first came here in 2003, December, um, I came with a hunger to share who I am in Christ, this good news of my identity in Christ. And that's good, and that's important. I will forever teach that. But what I've since come to learn, there's, there's more. There's more than just knowing who I am in Christ, which is more self-centered, but to discover who God is. Who is our Heavenly Father? And the last five years have been peeling back lies and layers of who I thought God was, and I'm being shocked into reality that, wait a minute, this God we say we believe in, he's actually good? Because I grew up in a really religious, really religious uh, kind of culture, and well-churched, and lots of rules, and heavy-handed structure, and you know, heavy discipline, and all that stuff, and you, you go to church. And all that was nice, but it made me feel like God is the guy who's saying, you have to go. It's like, wait a minute. And here at Hope Fellowship, we've been unlearning that and discovering you get to come and participate because you want to. You know, there are some Sundays you don't feel like coming. I know that. There's some Sundays I don't feel like coming. But I got to come. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's true. There's not, not every day is wonderful, at least uh, in experience, but it is wonderful if you get your focus right. Um, I'm going to encourage you guys to take a look at a book. There's only seven copies left on the back table. It's called Safe and Sound. This is the beginning of faith. This is good news. In fact, a lot of what I'm going to share with you this morning comes from this, especially one chapter. Um, uh, for the record, I was going to do, and I will be doing soon, a quick understanding of the Bible. How do you read it? How do you understand it? Where do you begin? All the basics that everybody should know and most don't know. So that is coming really soon. Um, just a heads up. So that I, I promised it and I want to do it. All my notes are ready. I'm eager. And I thought I'd be ready today and I wasn't. Something else came up. This came up. I felt God saying, no, I want you to teach about my love. Well, that's pretty generic, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's actually not. There's more to it today, and I hope today, based on what I have learned from this book, and by the way, this book will do a much better job than my message today in explaining the depths of the verses we're going to look at today, just a heads up. So this is from Paul Anderson Walsh, he's out of England, great guy, long talker, never a short message, and uh, yet filled with unbelievable truth. Remember when he was here last, you know, he was going on and on and on, but the people kept saying, more, more. It's pretty cool. That tells you something. The word love. We're going to be looking at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. And that word love, you have to know something about. 
Usually you go to weddings and you read this, love is patient, love is kind. And then the minister says something like, this is what you're supposed to do for each other. This is the to-do list for married people. Guess what? It's not true. It's not your to-do list as a married couple. All right? The standard, the bar is so high it's impossible. Isn't that good news now? Oh, good. You know, I have to try to do it. No, you get to do it. Christ in you gets to do this. But if you don't understand what some of these words mean, um, you may not get it. So let me tell you about the word love. The word love here in the Greek language is the word agape. The Greeks chose to use four words for the word love. In the English, we have one. I love hamburgers. I love my wife. Same word. Okay? It is not fair that there's only one word because there should be a difference here. <laughs> so in the Greek, they have four words. The first one is storge, and it means a parental love. So the word storge is parental love. Then we have phileo, as in fish. Phileo fish. No, it's, it's called phileo. And the word phileo is a friendship kind of love. I love my best friend kind of thing, whatever. It's, it's phileo. And then there's eros, which we get the word erotic from. That's not the word used here. This is the word agape, the fourth word. And agape literally means other-centered. God is agape. This is huge for reading this verse, this whole thing in context. I'm going to jump to God being love. And I'm going to show it to you because it's, it's so clear. And that word there is agape. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God literally is love. Growing up in Sunday school, I remember uh, being told lessons. Here's the attributes of God. He's just. He's merciful. And he, he's love. He's, he's all these things. Those are attributes. Love is not an attribute of God. Love is his DNA. It's his essence of who he is. And he cannot act in any other way but according to his nature, which is love. In 1 John 4, 16, it says, We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This is important. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Religion's focus is to talk to you about how you need to love God better. You need to love God more. The Bible does not say you need to love God more. It begins by you believing He actually loves you first. And then you live the rest of your life in response. Paul Anderson Walsh uh, came up with this line. You've heard me use it a lot, but I don't give him credit all the time. Um, but he said it's like um, people have been told it's our responsibility to love God. No. Paul requotes it and says, it's, you are now response-able. What is your ability to respond? What is your response-able to love God? Because you know you're loved, you can now respond and are able to live that out. It's a very different way of looking at it. So let's dig into 
Yeah, sure, we'll stay there. Let's look into 1 Corinthians 13, okay? The, the big love chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing because there's a lot in here. And we're going to focus on these key words today. If I could speak all the languages on earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all the great secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I can boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have be gaining nothing. Love, agape, is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance, especially the one you might be walking through today. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything and with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. That's really important to remember. Did you hear that? All that I know now is partial and incomplete. Nobody here has all the answers. No denomination, no church, no individual is more right than anyone else and has all the answers. You see partially. That's really important. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Let's pick this apart. It starts off by saying, I can have all the knowledge of the whole world. I can be the smartest one. I can be the strongest one. I can have these powerful supernatural gifts and say to a mountain, move. And everybody would go, ooh, isn't that wonderful? Pretty cool. I'm going to follow that guy because look at the power. But have not love, I'm useless. You think you can be right about your doctrine. You can be right and make sure you're more right than the other guy because remember, you have to win the arguments. But have no love, you're useless. We are called to first be loved and then love. Without love, without agape, other-centered, we're useless. And we're called to receive and believe his love. That's why the cross happened. 
First of all, to take away the hindrances that prevent us from understanding who this Heavenly Father is, taking away sin, and to exact his love on us. Let's begin with this word patient. Agape is patient. I'm going to read a couple of the quotes here because there's too much to try and remember off the cuff. It's just, it's too intense. Where there is no love, there is no patience. Where there is love and understanding, there is an unrelenting amount of patience. This goes for all relationships. Sometimes when we fight too much, we have forgotten that we are speaking to the one we say we love. And really, the moment we can step back and go, wait a minute, love is the foundation, and suddenly patience, the patience of Christ comes in, and we've got this weird patience that happens. There's an expression that we have today in our culture that says, I am losing my patience. This is one I have now memorized through all my schooling years because the teachers kept saying these kinds of things to me. It's just, anybody, anybody? Yes. Or you're trying my patience. Well, if we look at that word through that lens, we're pickled. Because there's no way that word means the same that our culture. Our culture is saying, you're trying my patience. I'm almost out of patience. I have none left. You're at the end of my rope with you. You know, all this, all this pushing that is not authentic patience. When people tell me they're being patient with me, what I assume is that they actually mean is they want to beat the living daylights out of me and they're effectively withholding their anger and thus I should be careful not to push too far. End of quote. Can you see why we could misunderstand the word patience? Well, our culture defines it a different way. Patience. Listen to this. Patience is calm endurance of hardship. Provocation or delay. It is tolerant, forbearance, born out of calm, self-possessed waiting. It is, in fact, core to God's nature and is neither limited nor conditional. It is simply a descriptor of his nature. God is patient is completely different than God is being patient with me. Have you ever thought God is being patient with me? No. God is patient, period. Agape is patient. Non-negotiable. This, this should bring some, wow, if this is true, he might actually be approachable. God's not fussing the whole time being impatient because I didn't get it. Despite my stupidity, he never lost his patience, never chided me, never thought about getting rid of me by replacing me with somebody else who will get it. You ever had a place where you don't get it? Maybe you don't even get God. So I'm not even sure I fully believe in him, at least not the one I've been told about. It's okay. He'll never get rid of you. His unending patience. It's beautiful. It's like teaching your kids to walk. Like today, I saw some near disasters back there, and, and one that was, you know, just the, the, the tripping, the bumping, the, the attempted walking of all the little kids and all that stuff. Parents, do you ever yell at your kids for not getting it? Oh, give up. You'll never get it. And you give up when, they, when they're trying to learn how to walk. No. Every little step, 
Yeah, yeah, way to go. That was one step. And the big cheering thing goes on. You're all excited. I remember when, when Noah first rolled on the, on the bed mattress. He just rolled over. Yes, he rolled. I was excited about that. It was progress. I wasn't saying, you'll never make it. You'll never walk. Whatever, I'll give up now. But that's the attitude many of us think God has. Can you see how screwed up our picture of who we think God is and how our world is is thinking who God is? Why do you think people hate church? It's because of all the religious followers. They're weird. Okay, They've got these rules that do not make sense. George Carlin had a quote that I thought was hilarious. I don't remember the entire quote, but I'll give you the essence of it. He talked about, you know, there's this loving God who loves you, and, you know, and he, he's got ten things for you to do, and if you screw up a single one of those ten things, he's going to burn you in hell for the rest of your life and all of eternity. But he loves you and wants your money. <laughs> That's the picture the religious churchianity church has sold to the world, which is not a clear picture of who the real God is. Anybody who ever encounters the real agape of God will be drawn to him, not repelled. Period. I really believe that. Agape is patient means that agape gives us room to fail without censoring us. It also means that we are freed to not get it. Not being judged as being stupid. In short, it means that love is set in the context of assurance and therefore it is rooted in the ground of no condemnation. There is no condemnation for you. God is patient. That's his essence. He is patient because agape is patient. Then we have this word kind. By the way, patience gives us permission to fail and consequently permission to succeed. There's a lot of assurance there. Agape is kind. The word kind. <laughs> Let me read from Romans 2.4. It says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Bless you, bless you, bless you. <laughs> Do you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It's actually God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not a, get it right or go to hell. That's not God. It's religion. Jesus came to put an end to religion. For kindness, to be agape kindness, it must want nothing for itself. Remember, agape is other-centered. If kindness wants anything for itself, it is disqualified. Agape is always and can only be me for others. It can never be others for me. I'm going to manipulate this group and be kind so that they'll follow. Our world is exposed to a lot of manipulators using the name of kindness. Oh, they're so nice. Nice is not what we're talking about. Kindness having anything up its sleeve is not kindness at all. It is pure manipulation or seduction. The vast majority of our exposure to kindness has been the counterfeit variety which, in truth, is manipulation. Self-giving in order to promote self-getting. There are ways to manipulate people. 
The kindness of God does not manipulate. That's pure, other-centered kindness. And I've met many kind people. They're authentically kind. They're not seeking anything for themselves. But then you have these ulterior motive people who come in either for a sales pitch or trying to move their way up their, their ladder. They're being nice. Darren Hufford brilliantly differentiated between niceness and kindness and saying, niceness makes you smile, kindness makes you cry. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Can you see the no ulterior motive here? That if you're already forgiven and he's being kind to you, oh my goodness, there's, this is real. There's no game. You can trust his kindness to you. Agape, other-centered love, cannot envy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Because agape is self for others, it cannot envy. It's an impossibility. This is real stuff. This is heavy-duty stuff. Envy is the signature of a self-life. Wanting it for yourself, manipulation, all of that stuff. Envy is the desire to take from others, while agape is the compulsion to give. Can you see the difference of taking and giving? The word eros, erotic, taking. That's all it is. Self-seeking, taking, where agape is others giving, seeking. Very big difference. Envy demands that what is yours is mine, whereas agape declares what is mine is yours. And Christ has given you everything you need. He's given you his full bounty of love and acceptance. Agape gives it to all, all, of, us, to all of us for free. What is envy? Literally, envy is the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing the advantage or prosperity of others. <laughs> Lori and I worked at a church once where um, it was a 200-year-old church, and some of the people had been there the entire time. And, uh, <laughs> and they had this idea that you've got to keep the pastor humble. And so... They were upset when every, every time the budget time came around, so why don't we just bring them chicken and drop off vegetables? You know, and that, that was the attitude. That was to keep them humble. And as soon as you get a, a, a used car, we got a used car. They were all envious. Oh, how could they spend their money on stuff like that? I thought, oh, man, where'd you bring me, Lord? You know, but that's where envy happens, and we see it. In our church family, we see it in our culture, we see it in neighbors, they get something new, ooh, I like that, well, why can't I have that, how can they afford that, you know, and all these judgmental things come, and guess what, that's not agape, that's envy, and can I tell you something else that's really important, the real you, because you're created in Christ, that's not in your DNA to act like that and think like that, so every time you do, it's not a reflection of the true you. You're believing a lie and living according to the lie. A voice planted in you to try and distract you from discovering the agape that is already in you. Envy. If allowed to take root, envy quickly and easily becomes jealousy. 
Jealousy is distinct from envy in that jealousy does not simply feel displeasure, but goes on to give birth to an indignation which desires to deprive the victim of that which is envious and take it for themselves. Even job positions. Somebody gets the job and you don't, and now you're going to make their life miserable until you get the position. I've seen people do it. I've heard of it. I've heard the jealous. The envy is the beginning. The jealousy is the fruit and action of it. In contrast, agape is never jealous of you. It's jealous for you. Agape loves people and uses things. It does not use people and love things. Big difference. This is good news stuff. I'd never looked through these words as I have since I read this. And I read this years ago. It's always been in the back of my mind. I don't think I've ever had a chance to teach on this. I'm trying to do it. Oh, I'm just going to say quickly. Okay. We're going to end in like two minutes, and then we'll finish up next week. It'll be a two-part, but this is too important. The envy. I want to show you some practical pictures from Scripture. Where are we? Envy up there. Oh, number three. Okay. Honestly, the rest is not as long as you think. But let me show you the fruit of envy. Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel where one guy makes a sacrifice, God shows his pleasure, and the other guy does a sacrifice and God is not pleased. And so the guy is not pleased, sees the pleasure of God in the other one and kills him. First murder in scripture. Envy turns to jealousy, which bore fruit in sin. Then we have the story of Sarah and Hagar. Hagar ends up having a baby for Abraham. Sarah can't have kids, but man, Sarah is one nasty woman to Hagar. We're talking seriously unkind and all of it to boot. Okay? After all, she is the one who said to Abraham, why don't you go sleep with Hagar, which was a stupid piece of advice. Who does that? Anyway, it happened, and now we have two sons of Abraham. Because Sarah ended up having a baby much later. The true seed that God had intended. And just because the other seed was produced from sin and trying to help God out from religion, guess what? That child was loved too. And this is where we get the whole Muslim nation from. Do you realize that? They share Father Abraham? Did you know that? Seriously, both children of Abraham, loved by God. Okay? Careful. More related than you know. Rachel of Leah, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Do you remember we just covered the story of Joseph where his brothers became very envious of his father blessing him with a coat and showing favoritism and all this stuff. And then the envy turned to jealousy. They ended up planning to kill him and just get rid of him because of all that. Jealousy is brutal. Envy is brutal. Miriam and Aaron were envious of Moses. Saul was of David. King Saul saw how David was being blessed by the Lord, and he wanted to kill him. He tried so many times to kill him, kill him, kill him, because he was jealous of him. He heard after a battle, David comes in, and he just won an incredible war, and everybody's singing. All the women were singing, Oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Well, with a higher voice. But anyway, it would all happen. And Saul heard, and he goes, What with that? I'm the king. I should get credit and became envious and jealous and continued the plight of trying to kill David. The fruit of this stuff is bad. 
Haman and Mordecai. The story of the princes of Babylon and Daniel when Daniel was being blessed because of being anointed by God. And the other guys were seeing that he was getting favoritism and tried to get him killed by setting him up for a prayer thing. Say, hey, we're going to get him. We're going to get him good. He prays three times a day, faces the east. Prays three times a day, faces east. Think for a moment. Anybody else do that? Just showing you where it came from. <laughs> okay, that was food for thought, rabbit trail. You can come up with the stuff yourself. So they tried to take him out. Made the king sign an order. Hey, anybody that prays other than to you goes in the lion's den and gets shredded. King signed it. Daniel got thrown in the lion's den, regrettably. And turns out God spared him. But the fruit was the envy. The priests and Jesus... The priests knew there's something special about Jesus and they wanted to take him out. It's very early. In fact, as soon as Lazarus was raised from the dead, at that point, there was a murder sentence. There was a bounty on Jesus' head and Lazarus' head to take them out. They began to plot at that point. Because who can argue when you raise a dead person. I'm talking really dead. Not just a few hours dead. I'm talking in the tomb, covered, spiced, dead. Dead. Raise him to life. That's a big miracle. They want to take out the evidence. Envy. And then, of course, the Jews and Paul. Same thing. Agape is not envious. It cannot it has everything it needs. It lacks nothing. So what would, what would it be envious of? You have been made right, clean, pure, and holy. The real you also is none of this. So when it comes out, stop and ask, where is that coming from? Clearly does not come from my union with Christ, my oneness with him. So where is it coming from? And ask the Holy Spirit to you to surrender that away because that's not the real you anyway. The stuff he wants you to surrender is not the real you anyway. It's good news. We're done. I can't believe it.